Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. I'm Adrian Torres, your host as always, and if this is your first time listening into the show, then let me give a little bit of an explainer on what it is we do here. This is a podcast that celebrates horror movies celebrating anniversaries. We don't go for any of the little piddly one-year, two-year, five-year anniversaries. We go for the major milestones in 10, 20, 30, 40, even past 50. And this year's actually a giant boon because, of course, this is 2018. And there are so many great films that you can even go back to 1958 with some movies that really set the seeds for things to come. Especially when it comes two remakes of course and that kind of is where we are in this episode if you listen to a couple episodes back we had the wonderful megan navarro on and we were talking about the blob 88 and the interesting thing about these years is that there are so many remakes but what you do have that crops up is you have a couple of the prime examples of the best of the best when it comes to the remakes and so we're going to go in the way back machine to 1978 and we're going to be discussing Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you're not familiar with the 1978 version, you definitely need to check it out. There are so many brilliant hallmarks in this film. First, and chiefly among them, is the deliriously wonderful and oh-so-curly hair of one Donald Sutherland. And of course, how that ties into the plot is... Okay. I got carried away this time talking about Donald Sutherland's hair. So that's on me. That's on me. Next time I'll speed it up a little bit and we'll get into the actual nuts and bolts of the movie before we have the guests come on. But we have a very, at least to me, very wonderful guest that I am so excited to have on to the show. Please give a warm horrorversary welcome to Miss Heather Wixon. How's it going, Heather? Hey, Adrian, I'm good. How are you doing? I, I'm doing good. I, th this is one that I was happy to go back and revisit. I, I mean, there's never a bad time for Invasion 78 in, in my book. No, never. Now, for the people who don't know you, please tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, um, for for those who don't know me, um, I am Heather Wixon. I am the managing editor of DailyDead.com. I am also one of the co-hosts for Corpse Club, which is the uh, official podcast over at Daily Dead. And I also recently wrote my very first book, uh, which is called Monster Squad, celebrating the artists uh, behind cinema's most memorable creatures. And it profiles 20 different special effects artists who helped uh, kind of bring to life all of our very favorite horror and sci-fi movies over the years. And I've been writing about all this stuff now professionally for about 11 years. So it has flown by. I'm, I'm still kind of shocked that I'm sitting here 11 years later. And I've gotten to not only kind of steer a really amazing website uh, with Daily Dead, but that I've also written a book, which is really insane. I wish I, you know, you're saying the Wayback Machine. I wish I could get in that until like eight-year-old me, like, hey, guess what you're going to do one day? <laughs> So eight-year-old you would probably not believe you and then also wonder why out of all the times in in time you would choose that moment to go back to 
You know, it's, it's funny because it's actually, I remember I found this report I did when I was in second grade and it was like this thing you did at the end of the year and it was like your favorite book, your favorite TV show and your favorite movie. And I remember mine got me in trouble because my favorite book was like Helen, the Helen Keller book. Uh, favorite TV show is Cosby show and that obviously hasn't aged well. Um, but my favorite movie I drew was Fright Night. <laughs> and my teacher was really upset by that. She hated me, actually. My second grade teacher was the worst. Um, and she, she actually called my mom about it because she was afraid that I was being uh, exposed to things that I shouldn't be exposed to as a child. And I don't think my mom really cared much. But yeah. So eight year, so misunderstood eight-year-old me would be like, what? What did I get to do? So yeah, that's why I go to eight. Well, they, at the same time, it kind of ties into the very first question that we like to ask everybody, which is, do you remember when you first saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978? I do, actually. Um, weirdly enough, I actually saw a lot of Invasion of the Body Snatchers before I ever actually saw the full movie. Uh, and that was due to my obsession with Terror in the Isles, uh, which is this great movie from like 1984 with Donald, uh, Donald Pleasance. I almost said Sutherland. All the Sutherlands tonight. Um, but it was with... Donald Pleasance and Nancy Ellen and they're sitting in a theater and it's basically like a big clip uh, movie. But for me, like that turned into like sort of my Bible. Um, so I would like use the cover art to like track down different movies and stuff like that at my video store because uh, that's how old I am, kids. Uh, so I actually had Invasion 78, quote unquote, ruined for me before I ever saw the movie, which was probably when I was like. I want to say I finally got to see it when I was like 10 or 11. Um, so I was still pretty young. But my best friend's parents were really into like sci-fi horror. Mm -hmm. So like I grew up, at, you know, like we were always like at each other's houses growing up. So when I was at hers, I was always watching stuff like either like Star Trek or we were watching Alien or Aliens. Um, like any kind of like sci-fi stuff, like her parents were super into that. Um, so they rented invasion one day and I know they'd seen it. Um, but they rented it for us. And it, it's funny cause it's a movie that I definitely see differently now as an adult, mm -hmm. as I did as a kid, you know, uh, it was like a weird goopy movie that had crazy like camera stuff and I didn't quite understand it. Now I just see it like as the masterpiece it is, but yeah, I was pretty young. And see, that's what's interesting about this movie. Cause you mentioned that there's the two different fronts that you can watch it on. And it's the same with, if you aren't, as deep into horror as we are that you can watch it just as a regular movie and be like oh cool that's that's nice but when you start to appreciate movies it's the type of film that you you go back and you watch and you're like oh wow i didn't notice all these little things that they're doing for the entire movie and like re-watching it again this time that there were other little things that i that i picked up on that i missed when i was watching it before and just little sound cues that they have and and the way they're they're structuring everything so it was it was really impressive but for the people out there who've been living under a rock or are only familiar unfortunately with the 2007 version of invasion um, Ooh. in as few words as possible please please describe to these uninitiated folks what invasion 78 is about Oh, okay. I thought you were going to put me on the spot about Invasion 2007. I was like, no, oh, we'll no. Get we'll get to that. Okay. We'll to that. Okay, cool. Um, so for me, I mean, Invasion 78 is, you know, as you mentioned, one of the very best remakes we ever had. Um, for me, it's sort of this picture perfect snapshot of 
sort of post Vietnam, post Nixon paranoia um, that a lot of people were feeling at the time, uh, especially women as their roles were changing in society as well. Um, I think, you know, Philip Kaufman really digs into that as well. Um, basically, it's, you know, these folks working for the Food and uh, Health Administration who stumble upon the fact that we are being invaded by pod people. And slowly the, you know, we see the residents of San Francisco being overtaken by these crazy alien creatures that sort of spit uh, replicant bodies out of these crazy pods. So, but what, you know what's really interesting to me, and I, I guess I always had it different in my head, though. Um, I always imagine, like, invasion because, you know, it's like a quote-unquote grown-up horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought it was rated R, and it and I realized it's a PG movie, just like yeah. Jaws. Um, and I was like, man, because when I was, you know, because I watch it a lot. Um, I'm one of those where I, I watch movies <laughs> quite a bit because I'm a creature of habit. But I realized, I was like, when I, when I, I think it was when the Scream Factory one came out, and I was like, this really was PG mm-hmm. and you have it in your mind that it's like this really disturbing thing, but no, it's, I mean, I guess maybe that's why they rented it for us because it's like, you know, a movie for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's such a, it's such a perfect um, remake in terms of taking a really strong material that already exists and then finding new ways to sort of, you know, bring it into a new sort of level of culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. Which leads into the next question that you did touch upon, and not just from the remake aspect, but just in all of filmdom. What do you think helps account for the longevity of this movie in particular, or specifically this one? It's interesting. I think one, um, you've got a, a really brilliant director at the helm who was willing to do some risky stuff in terms of the material and sort of the way that he even, you know, on a visual level frames all of everything going on at certain times. Um, some people might've been a little thrown off. I think I remember, I remember reading a review years and years ago, like when I first got on the internet and was like, Ooh, we can do these kind of things. Uh, and somebody like was making fun of its effects and camera work, calling it like schlocky. Um, and somebody said like they would have expected better from like a Roger Corman movie from that era. And I was like, okay, well, first of all, don't be stepping on Roger Corman's toes here. But, and I was like, no, you do. Are you completely missing what he's doing? And I mean, you know, hindsight's always 2020 because you look at movies and I think invasion 78 reviewed fairly well. Um, I mean, it came out in December, so I can't imagine it's a movie that a lot of people were like, hey, it's Christmas. Let's go watch that really isolating movie about people (laughs) being overtaken by aliens. You know, it doesn't really say like Merry Christmas to me. Um, But, you know, it's it's like the thing. It's like all great sci fi movies. I think some of them are just so misunderstood in their time that it takes a little bit for people to catch up. Well, this Um, one one made a. Uh, a profit right away which it was pretty impressive on it like i think that it it cost around like four to six million dollars and made 24 million dollars at the box office yeah and and i think that's a pretty you know a pretty good you know obviously return on investment but i think it's one of those movies that you know it had that initial push and i think you mentioned it's sort of one that not a ton of folks talk about and i don't understand it because for me it's like right up there with movies like you know cronenberg's the fly or you know we're talking about you know great remakes and stuff like that the thing you know um it's one of those that kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit and it makes me a little sad because it really i mean 
when you talk about like ensembles like of this era of horror, I don't think you get any better than what you have in Invasion 78. Yeah. No, I completely agree with it there. Do you think and any weird and I know it's kind of a weird thing to mention, but it's it's in the movie. Do you think that because it tries to take uh, a slightly philosophical and intellectual stance in the film that that might be what distances some people? <sighs> You know, maybe I think also because at that that point in time, like you had people sort of um, pushing back against sort of the remnants of the 60s, I think, mm-hmm. too, where everybody's supposed to sort of believe in love and believe in, you know, human connection. And then you have like, you know, in it was sort of like people were open about going to psychiatrists and stuff like that. Now you have like Kibner coming in and he's this very off putting presence. I mean, what a brilliant choice of putting Leonard Nimoy of all people at that time in this role. Um, but he's very smug. He's very arrogant. You know, I mean, he's kind of the pure definition of mansplaining uh, in a lot of ways, especially like when they're sitting in the apartment and talking about stuff and he's laying on the couch with his, with his eyes closed and you can just hear the sarcasm like, like with every syllable. If he's like, so yeah. you're telling me <laughs> it opened its eyes and looked at you and you're just like, you son of a bitch, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I think because it's not like, quote unquote, like this huge spectacle of effects like the thing is. And that's not saying that's the reason why the thing works is why. I mean, it has Kurt Russell, too. So, you know, um, the, those are two very big, powerful things to push your movie <laughs> forward. And you've got a movie like The Fly, which, you know, Goldblum, you know, Mr. Mr. Remake, um, who, you know, it's it's a really hugely emotional story. Um, driven by two very big stars at that time. And I think for me, 78's, uh, Invasion 78 is kind of the more subtle approach yeah. where it wasn't looking to make some big noise. It was looking to tell a really good story, a really smart story, or you know, a story of the quote-unquote times. Um, and you know, I think because you know, it was really character-driven and the fact that you know, it relied on you know, a few actors who were still kind of coming up at that time um, I, I think it's just it's a completely different approach uh, that Kaufman does. And so I think that's why it's I mean, I, to me, it's one of the very best um, ever in terms of, you know, science fiction movies of the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one like I said, it's one I revisit a lot because of that. Uh, and I also think because and it's really just terrible that we live in this moment. But like when you go back and watch these movies from like 40 and 50 years ago and you're like, Oh, these are really strong cautionary tales with like really important ideas. And you're like, Oh, well we clearly have learned our lesson and you know, we know better now. Right? No, we don't. So it's like you watch movies like Rosemary's baby or you watch movies like invasion 78 and you're like, Jesus, like these movies are just as important now as they were then. Yeah. But I think now we can appreciate it. Oh, oh, very much so. And like the opening of the film, it was striking rewatching it now because I hadn't seen it in several years. And you forget that it's almost four, four and a half minutes until the movie actually begins because they've got the wonderful um, opening credit sequence with the score that feels very evocative of, of films from like the late 50s and 60s to those old horror epics and sci-fi epics that it's it's very much of that old world um and then it has that great shot on the leaves of the pods coming and it's just very quiet and it doesn't have a voiceover like you would have in so many other movies 
and it just it really takes its time. Oh, it definitely does. Um, and you were mentioning the score, which I think is Zeitlin. I'm trying to remember. Is it Zeitling? I, I, everybody can just go ahead and it's punch the, me in the face with it. It's the only one he did is all I know. Okay. Um, I, it, which I always thought was interesting because it's a really beautiful kind of almost riff on some of the themes from like Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, but in sort of a more elegant way, if that makes any sense. Uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I think it's like the first – six minutes total maybe doesn't have any discernible dialogue like you hear eventually once we get to the playground and you see the creepy priest sitting there swinging and watching the kids like you have discernible chitter chatter but nobody has like had an actual real line of dialogue yet that's like you know part of this you know narrative uh which you know proves the point that you know we're expecting independence day when it comes to you know, something coming over and taking, you know, taking over our world when it could be just as simple as some stuff, crazy, weird stuff falling from the sky. Yeah. You know, and nobody knows any different. Uh, and I think that's why why it's so unsettling is because, you know, it wasn't this big cataclysmic moment. It's just this, you know, it's, it's just quiet little. Oh, now we have weird spider webs all around San Francisco. That's no big <laughs> deal. Right. Like, I would be freaked out if there were giant spider webs left all around my, my city. Like, yeah. first of all, because that means there might be a spider problem. And no, thank you. Uh, but two, it's weird. And that's when you leave. You know, I'm like, oh, no, we, we go now. So um, but I think that's always really interesting. I think, again, that's why uh, I really like Kaufman's approach to the film, because it's so I mean, yes, it's smart. You know, I know, I know we mentioned the word intellectual, but it like at the same time, it really it's thought provoking in a way that maybe science fiction movies at that point weren't willing to be. They weren't yes. willing to let those ideas sit with audiences and kind of work them out with characters. Um, you know, it was it was more about like, OK, you're seeing this thing happening, but look around your own world. Like, is this happening around you? I mean, it's, you know, the end of the world could be just that insidious. Like it could just be already be here. Yeah. And, and Goldblum even says it later on when he's at uh, the book signing and everything when. Donald Sutherland gets off the phone and he just says, it's all a big conspiracy. And right. Sutherland looks at him and he goes, what? And then right. goes, everything, <laughs> it's just everything, everything's a big conspiracy. And you're just like, well, that, that, that really hits, hits into it. And it's just as great. Like they have all these little pieces that are, that are weaving into the film that even though this movie was made in 78, I really appreciated how, how postmodern it was at the same time. Cause you, finally get the scene later on which again we'll have the little disclaimer right here if for some reason you haven't seen invasion of the body snatchers from 1978 pause right here go watch it and then come back um it's available basically everywhere for some reason it's also uh available on tubi tv for free of all places so you have no excuse not to have seen it but then Come back here and press play and, and continue because we're going to get into the nitty gritty. We're going to spoil things because about three quarters of the way through the film, we have the scene where Leonard Nimoy has cornered them in uh, Sutherland's office. And he starts to mention, oh, we we were a species, you know, who who were like seeds being cast on the solar wind going from planet to planet. And then as he's in the middle of the speech, like just starting it, Sutherland crashes into it and goes run. And it's still at that time. You had all the movies where, where the bad guys or whoever it was would, would have their giant monologue. 
explaining everything. And then here in 1978, they're just like, no, it doesn't really matter. Other things are more important. Yeah. Getting getting out of this room actually matters a lot more than, you know, you guys are aliens. You're here. We get it. We're, we're going to go now. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I think what's really for me, one of the best parts of invasion is this sort of who is, you know, who's infected, who isn't. And, you know, and I think Kaufman plays the, that hand very well through a lot of the movie, because I'm always trying to wonder, like, at what point, you know, was Kibner taken over do you think he was taken over early and then he's now going around discounting everybody about it just simply because that's his function as this thing now um it's really interesting i i you know i've always i've always wanted to know like you know if in kaufman's head like I'm, and i'm sure he did because he yeah. was a meticulous director like if he had mapped out like for some of the earlier characters who obviously weren't like donald sutherland or brooke adams um like you know, at what point were we going to see, you know, did they make the transition? Because, again, in most instances, you know, it's a really quiet thing that we don't even see. Yeah. Um, which also just sort of feeds that fear and paranoia as you're watching it. I, I think it's when he um, before he goes back over to meet up with Matthew and everybody, because after his. his well, yeah, I mean, he leaves because he, he has a change. He leaves of, with. Yeah, well, he leaves also with Art Hindle, who we know at that point is is over. Um, but I'm, I've always wondered if it was before the book signing or not. See, I um, think I think he shows too much emotion. Emotion, okay. And he, fair he's, enough. He's much more. He's still listening, and he still has a slight twinge of emotion, but he's not laughing in, in the same way. He's just slightly more animated than the other pod people are. But but he has a lot more. Like during the book signing. Or when they're outside and he's talking to Brooke Adams and Goldblum walks by and he shoves him up against the wall and shakes him and everything. And then quickly turns to her and goes, okay, how did that make you feel? Wh what did you think about that? Like, there's, there's way too much feeling behind that, you know, as opposed to, to him just asking her how she would feel if somebody did something like that. And it's, it's through that extension of emotion that, that it seems to be more of the giveaway. Yeah. Also, um, I don't know if there's been a there's a movie that paints writers as like the most pathetic people ever, <laughs> like between being like the egotistical doctor who's writing schmaltz and like basically nothing. Yeah. And then you have the long suffering Jack, you know, who's Jeff Goldblum, who Runs is just a, so a mud bathhouse. <laughs> but like he's just so like, oh, he's like that writer, like that guy. He's the tormented you know, twisted soul of a writer who's so frustrated, like that he can't, you know, enjoy anything about life. And you're just like, oh, I don't want to be either one of these guys. The, the, the um, very first thing that Nancy has to ask him is, did you not get to read your poetry? <laughs> right. <laughs> like it was like an open, uh, like an open poetry slam. And everyone's waiting around here like the the new guy's po like poem during the uh, signing of the very successful doctor. <laughs> that's that's what we're all waiting for. Like there's like that guy who's like he's like at the wedding and he's like, oh, I'm going to sing a song now because this is my moment. And it's like, no, this isn't your moment. Go away. So <laughs> uh, it, it works, though. So do you have a, a is there a signature or standout scene that in your mind exemplifies what's so great about this movie? I I think the whole sequence. 
Oh man. I mean, beyond the whole them running and like, of course seeing the dog merged with the, with the banjo player, oh. um, which is like the greatest thing ever. I love that. I wish somebody would make that into a figure cause I would own it. I'm the one person who would want that. Uh, so make it so NECA. Um, I, I mean, I think it probably would be that because it's them trying to conform into society. This is, the way that society, uh, blah, blah, the way that, uh, why can't I say society? Like what is wrong with me? I did. I'm not, I'm not drunk. I promise. Uh, the way that society, um, you know, expects you to behave and you have to sort of fall in line with all that or otherwise you're just going to be, you know, cast out of it or you're going to be found or taken in and stuff like that. Um, and sort of turned into one of these people. I mean, that's such a really great moment because you're, you're just like, Oh my God, how are they going to get through this? Cause clearly we're not talking about a couple hundred people now. Like there's thousands of people who are now pod people. Um, and then it leads up to this, you know, the scene with the helicopter. And, you know, of course, I said the, ba- you know, banjo dog dude. Um, there's just a lot of really great stuff. Um, and especially, I think the editing is really strong during those sequences as well. Um, which I'm always very, you know, very fond of anybody who can really make a sequence like that feel like, you know, as I, as we call in our house, because my boyfriend's an editor, Titan, right? Uh, it just, it, it's, it's snappy. It moves. It's great. You don't, you know, you don't feel anything is out of place. Like it almost works like a symphony, yeah. uh, in a way that it moves. Um, so I would probably say that, uh, just because I think that's such a really fantastic scene. And of course, I mean, I think the most iconic moment, of course, is, is the final moment though. Yes. Which, which is great. And we'll get to that, uh, in a couple minutes, but yeah, the, the scene that you're talking about was the one that I, I really appreciated this time. Cause when everybody talks about invasion of the body snatchers, they're closer to say uh, science fiction every single time than saying horror, but it very much is a horror movie in the way that it's set up in the way that it unfolds. And especially because when you get to that scene is when the hammer drops, when you you've got the pod people who are starting to ooze and you've got Sutherland there and everybody's freaking out. And then he starts the decapitation and you have the blood, and the moment he does that, all the people start doing the squeals and popping over the sides, and then it's that race, and that's when the gears shift so much into full-on horror from from there on. It's just survival mode, and it's great how they have that lead-up. And the lead-up itself, just to everything in the movie, is what I really appreciated. And at home, we kind of take it for for granted sometimes and paying attention to everything that's happening in the peripheral. But that's how this movie's set up is that you can, you'll see the one guy in like minute four or five of the film, you know, who's running across the screen and you can in the distance hear the little squeal because it's already started and it's already starting to take over. And then it keeps on building and building throughout the movie that there's more police everywhere. You're starting to see lots of people who are just standing in alleyways and just off to the side and then when they get to the apartment, everything, all of a sudden, everything's silent. There's no police outside. They can't find a radio station for the news or anything. And it, it's just that mounting dread is done so well that I'm surprised that people put horror second for this film. Yeah. And I think also a lot of that is achieved through Michael Chapman's 
uh, cinematography because of the yeah. way that he uses shadows so beautifully and brilliantly. Oh, I mean, it's like he even he even plays with them in full sunlight, which is not an easy feat. And if you yeah. go back and watch, uh, especially on the scene uh, with Nimoy and Sutherland on the porch when they're talking outside, uh, I mean, he's playing with shadows in broad daylight. Uh, and not many not many cinematographers can pull that off, you know, and I mean, he's a guy who's a legend in his own right. And I think, you know, the way that they I mean, San Francisco itself is one the like the perfect landscape for this movie because it's so weird the way that it's structured with like the hills and everything like that. Like half the time people are walking and you're sort of walking slanted as it is. Yeah. Um, and I love that the way that the camera leans into that feeling. Uh, as well like everything is off kilter here and it's the minute that the the aliens arrive that everything is sort of sort of thrown askew um and i just think you know and again i think some people back when this movie came out were like oh what are you doing why are you shooting it like that and i think it's just like another brilliant extension of what you know kaufman himself was trying to do and i think michael chapman like this is a incredibly well shot movie um gorgeous yeah, and he's, I mean, this is the guy who was doing, like, Raging Bull back in the day. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for him to come over and do, like, a quote-unquote horror movie or sci-fi movie, like, that was, and that must have been a pretty big deal. I mean, I, I don't know specifically because I wasn't old enough to know that back then. Um, I was, like, nine months old. <laughs> so, um, but I just think, like, wow, like, that's pretty cool that this guy who was nominated for, I think, a couple Oscars at that point. Because uh, I think he also did Taxi Driver, too. Um, and what, then what here he is, say is that, uh, uh, What I was going to say is that it, he is the rule of uh, always scroll down and never scroll up on uh, on IMDb. Because I, I was looking at it while you are mentioning it, and I'm like, oh the last detail oh taxi driver yeah oh, the last waltz of of course invasion of the body snatchers hardcore raging bull uh personal best and then going up the lost boys there you go that's pretty good and then i continued to scroll up and and saw oh ghostbusters 2 <laughs> oh doc hollywood oh space jam yeah, but I think he did the Fugitive too, though. Yeah, he, I mean, he he did do this the the Fugitive. He did Primal Fear. Um, he unfortunately did uh, the Watcher. If you've ever seen that one, so if you have, I'm sorry. Um, but it it, it was one of those that as you go up, like he had all these great movies in a row, and then you scroll up and they like start become few and far between, and you're like, oh, why is it that unless you're like two to three cinematographers of all time. As you get older, even though your skills aren't diminishing, Hollywood's like, we don't want you behind the camera anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, speaking of The Watcher, I did see it on IMAX. Because that movie needed to be shown in IMAX. They, they had it in IMAX? They did. Thank you, Marcus. Marcus Cinemas in Addison, Illinois. So you could really, really get the entire feel of James Spader jabbing the needle into his infected whatever it was gallbladder whatever he was injecting i i wasn't i wasn't there for james spader that night <laughs> okay, i was, was there for was keanu a, that's understandable that's understandable so i'll I, i'm not gonna fall too there um 
that that's the completely opposite direction of this movie though so uh, yeah no that's 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 not a, yeah that wasn't what i would call a subtle thought-provoking thriller uh no. or sociopolitical thriller which, not which, at all which this is but but speaking about the cinematography what what struck me was certain shots he was choosing that you normally uh, wouldn't get either because he wanted to show you like where things were in conjunction with everything else in the city, like the great shot where Donald Sutherland's on the phone and he's got the Capitol building right behind him and it's just perfectly framed or when he's uh, in the car driving with Brooke Adams and to get make sure that they have Sutherland still in the shot, he's focusing on the rearview mirror at an angle so it's bouncing back on him. Yeah, no, it was they they really put a lot of thought into it, too. And I think also um, it was interesting to me because one, I, you know, now I kind of watch it. I'm like, oh, man, they kind of like waste Art Hindle in this movie a little bit. <laughs> um, but I also think Jeffrey is such an interesting character because he's a guy that we just we don't really know anything about. And I think the reason is that Kaufman was probably about like 35 years ahead of the curve on this yeah. um, is that, you know, we spend most of our time with Jeffrey, like with him wearing headphones before he turns. Um, and, it you know, it was Kaufman's way of talking about like the disconnect that technology 40 years ago was already starting to cause yeah. amongst, you know, couples. And then look at where we're at now. Like people go to dinner and you look around at people at tables and most people are just sitting there on their own phones. You know what I mean? Very rarely do you see like everybody at a table sitting there with their phone away and having real conversations anymore. You know, and so think about the comments of like that 40 years ago and look where we're at now. And again, we have learned nothing, Um, you know, so it's it's interesting that, you know, things that we see now that are sort of, you know, leading to, you know, the dysfunction of, of how we deal with each other socially are able to interact with people socially in per in person, mm-hmm. um, you know, is all things that, you know, kind of started happening way before we probably even realized it, but Kaufman knew. Um, but I love those scenes though. I love those scenes, especially when she comes home and he's in pitch blackness and it's just, you just see him watching the game. He wants to like make out with her a little bit, but then as soon as the game gets interesting again, he's like, Oh nope, nope. I'm getting, I'm going to watch this, you know? Um, and he almost throws her off of him as like somebody scores. So, and, but who doesn't score that night? Art Hendel. Just saying. <laughs> well, he also gets overtaken and basically killed. So he, he loses regardless. That's true. Or does he win? I don't even know at this point. Like I'm, I'm at this point. I'm like, if the pod people came and took us over, would it be okay just to live out the rest of my life not having to give a crap about stuff? Well, it, it depends. I'm still on, here, on, right? It depends on how much you're cognizant of everything, because right, you're, you're technically one of them, and they mentioned that. Oh, you know, all the memories and everything are intact. Well, they're basically emotionless. They. It doesn't you don't really have any idea of what their full plan is once they take over then they just live on the planet until I mean I, what, I what, guess they so. die or the planet die because like the the whole idea that we're led to believe is that once a planet's been used up uh, they move like, on exactly and but if they're not if they don't have any emotion and they're just basically going to their job, they're not doing anything then there's not going to really be any progress like what happens to television what happens to sports what happens to to movies what happens to innovation what happens to 
to any type of progress once they've taken over the planet. Yeah, I mean, I think it stops. And I think that's, you know, Kaufman's way of saying conformity is basically the death of everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, I think because you're coming off of something like the Vietnam War, you're coming off with, a, you know, a lot of folks who are very disenfranchised after the whole, you know, Watergate scandal. Um, you know, these are people who had been, you know, following what the quote unquote American dream you know, that people were being sold in the 50s and the 60s. And the 70s was a pretty big wake-up call for a lot of folks. Um, you know, and I think that's something that Kaufman taps into really effectively here uh, on a very a lot of different levels because it works, you know, on a social level. It works on a political level. I think it works, you know, in terms of exploring the idea of what, what even relationships are. Yeah. Like, if we know we're going to be fine, like, why can't we give up love? What is it that we need out of love? In order to function as a human being. And why? Like, yeah, why and, do we need this? And, and Nemo even has that scene when he's in, you know, psychiatrist mode. But he, it's still, you know, kind of the foundation of that character and what he cares about. And the whole reason why he's trying to reach through to her. He, he mentions that, you know, relationships are changing or there's people who are either getting into them too early. And the slightest form of change being introduced is what throws them off. And then there's just so many different people who are in relationships who who are questioning the mere fact of should i be in this relationship when nothing's really bothering them to begin with yeah and i and i think you know i think it was a pretty scary time i think for a lot of folks i mean again i wasn't quite old enough to know it it, it, when i was existing in it um but i know also too because you know i'm pretty smart and i like to watch my old uh 90s document or like those those different decade documentaries at cnn did over the last couple of years and I love those. Um, but the seventies one I thought was really interesting, you know, because they talked about the fact that, you know, this was right before like the boom of the eighties in terms of like economics and stuff yep. like that, that was going on on wall street with the wealthy. So you had, you know, m- most of the country was in the same place. Um, and it, you know, everything started to shift in the eighties where everybody was just feeling like what, you know, what are we even doing? Um, and it's interesting because you look at this and it's not like with this movie, these things came in and targeted the elite. The You know what I mean? Like they didn't work their way down a hierarchy. They just came out at everybody, um, which, again, I think is pretty interesting because a lot of times like when you're watching movies about this kind of material, like there's usually a quote unquote plan. You know what I mean? Like when you're watching Independence Day. Like they're targeting the biggest cities first and then they're going to do this. And you know what I mean? And this one, it's just like it's coming like, yeah. you know, and it's it's going to hit everybody the same. Um, so, yeah, I just think there's some really, of course, sadly, timely stuff in there as well. Um, but, man, like I couldn't even imagine like watching that movie again around Christmas time of all times. <laughs> and while I mean, like, yeah, I totally want to be in like in a relationship and stuff. You know, everything was really starting to change in the late 70s. Um, and I think, again, I, because if you look at the movies that were coming out, you know, during that era, like you can see the changes in film reflecting how society was turning. Uh, and it's really interesting. I think the seventies is one of my favorite eras just to go back and watch. Cause I think there's so much to learn from that decade in particular that I, you know, I know everybody talks about like the sixties and everybody loves the eighties cause it's fun. But I think the seventies is where the really interesting stuff was happening. Yeah. It's, it's where lots of the experimenting. I mean, the, there was more like, I know ND wasn't really the, the thing back then, but you had the smaller experimental films 
coming out in the 60s. And by the 70s, you had the larger studios who were like, let's put out a couple of these movies a year and let's let's people go hog wild and see what they can what they can make because there's still a viable market for that. So if the movie is critically a failure, we'll still be able to make the money back, which is, of course, completely different than nowadays where they say we want something that's to be very cookie cutter and, and we're able to sell to everybody. And if it works financially, that's all we care about. So it's it's really interesting to see that back then they were willing to take the risks. And I think that's how you end up getting a movie like this where you have you know Philip Kaufman directing it. And then, of course, we've been talking about this film, but we haven't given a shout out to uh, the great W.D. Richter. So. He, oh yeah he he needs that attention so <laughs> <laughs> well and i think also too i mean i we also should take a moment to talk about um both brooke adams and yes. veronica cartwright as well oh, you know i know everybody when they're talking about like scream queens and stuff you know we get the usual suspects uh for for me veronica cartwright oh, yeah. is easily one of the greatest quote-unquote and i hate using scream queens because i'm like i don't know if it's derogatory anymore towards actresses i don't know but i in terms of what we think of as traditional scream queens i think she's one of the very best um and i think between alien and this film it you know firmly cemented her as one of the greatest talents um that's ever she was a kid oh yeah yeah because i i literally of course this episode's going to be coming out a lot further so i'm going to say july here and you're going to be hearing this in August, so bear with me. But yeah, on uh, the 3rd of July, um, I hosted um, a Terror Tuesday showing of The Birds here in Kansas City. Oh, wow. I haven't seen The Birds on a big screen ever, so that's pretty cool. It was it was great, and then completely forgetting that Veronica Cart- Cartwright was in there, and it's like, there's basically always been a decade where where she has been in some type of you know, seminal horror. And of course, people who are younger might not know her from film, but know her from television where she still is, is going up against (laughs) aliens of one kind or another. Yeah. And I also think like Brooke Adams too, like she's had a really good career, you know, career. Um, And I don't want us to be like, when people say this, I don't want to be like, Oh, well you had such a terrible time and you made terrible movies. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, But I think Brooke Adams should have had a bigger career. Um, I think she has immeasurable talents. Um, there's something so incredibly likable about her. So engaging, you know, I could watch her forever. She's up there with me for like, sort of like the, like the Jessica Harper's of the world, Mm -hmm. um, or the Karen Allen's, you know what I mean? Like that girl, you just want to spend as much time with as you can. (laughs) Um, and I know she's like the dead zone and she's done a lot of really good stuff, like mainstream stuff too. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, she was in the Babysitter's Club movie, so <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but no. Once again, scroll down, don't scroll up. Oh, no, I just remember that because I, I actually saw the Babysitter's Club movie. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it, it was something. Uh, <laughs> I was a huge Babysitter's Club fan. Anyway, um, but she's so – I love her and Donald Sutherland in this movie together so much. Yeah. Um, and I think the most tragic part of that is just when he's like holding her and it's finally the moment where he can tell her that he loves her. And this is the thing that we all do in our minds. We never tell people how we so feel funny. when we're in the moment. Yeah. And it's in like her last like one minute of existence that he's finally able to admit this and he comes back and she's she's gone. 
I mean, she's not gone because then Pod, you know, yeah. Pod Elizabeth shows up. Um, but the Elizabeth that he knew uh, is just gone. And I and I wonder because I know he goes and he's very determined and he tries to, you know, sort of, quote unquote, fight the system. Um, but I'm wondering if that's the moment, you know, where Matthew basically breaks, where he's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to fight this. But I don't think he was really fighting to win the war. I think he was fighting with anger at the yeah. in those moments. And he just knew inevitably that he was just basically, you know, in a race against time that he was never going to win. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. It, it definitely feels like because if you even watch him, I, I don't mean to discredit Donald Sutherland at all because he's wonderful. But the way he's swinging that axe isn't isn't really like somebody who's trying to go for precision and it's somebody who's just really mad and just going, you goddamn thing, you're going to break. And he, yeah, I've, I've swung an ax twice in my life and I still (laughs) probably would do it better than that. Yes. It's (laughs) maybe it's, it's very, it's very sad looking, but it, it it comes from somebody who's asking out of desperate, desperation and rage, as opposed to, you know, thinking everything through. And at every other point in the movie, he tries to have, a plan of action and it's the one time where he just acts and then he just runs away and even though they don't show what leads to him um turning to the other side and and being overtaken by the pod people when that when he's just kind of huddled down there and they've got the guy looking in the hole and he he shines the flashlight it kind of feels like that's his his resignation where he's like okay i did i made my last gasp i'm not gonna get to be with her eventually they're gonna take me so i i'm i'm ready now yeah i mean and it's a it's a pretty downer ending overall um i mean it just me basically you know resistance is futile um and we're all gonna have to conform in some way or another i guess is the ultimate message here it's a super happy feel good uh movie again for christmas you know, <laughs> definitely something you want to go and cozy up with your loved ones and basically watch as, you know, the, the world is stripped away from you as you know it. Uh, but no, I mean, I think that's why for me it's always been so effective is because, you know, there could have been that heroic ending. Like maybe Matthew would have won. Maybe there was a way to stop this. Um, but I think for Kaufman, looking at the quote unquote reality of this story, uh, and the ideas that he was exploring, I think he realized, like, no, there is no happy ending here. Like, this is where we're heading. Uh, and he wasn't wrong. No, I totally agree. And, of course, because we're getting kind of close to the wire here, so I am going to to quickly ask the, the question that you have been treading. Um, because normally what we ask is, is there a modern counterpart uh, to this movie? And in what ways do you feel you know, that it compares favorably or maybe not as favorably. But for those who aren't aware, Invasion of the Body Snatchers has two different remakes, which they had one in the 90s and one very unfortunately famously in 2007. So how do you feel that this movie compares to those two? It's interesting because I was like, why have we made so many invasion movies? Um, especially when this movie exists. And even, even the original, I've only ever seen once uh, as a kid. Um, so I liked it. I, I don't remember a ton about it. I mean, obviously, I remember Kevin McCarthy because who can forget? Um, so I'm like, but if this movie exists, like, OK, what are you what are you guys going to bring to the table? Um, I I don't even know if I ever saw the 90s one, to be honest. The, the 90s one's interesting. It's It's a lot. It's a lot smaller because it's oh god I'm going to mispronounce her her name and I'm 
Oh god, I'm gonna to have to look it up. But it's it's a very it's a smaller film because most of it's taking place on an army base basically, and so that's kind of where they're going uh, from there. So it's very smaller um, compared to like when everything's going to be exploding and going all over the place. So it takes a while to to get there, and you you just kind of see it from through a smaller lens is the best way to say it, as opposed to san francisco um oh uh gabrielle anwar oh okay i remember that chick and it's okay it's an abel ferrara film actually okay then um yeah that's yeah all right then um but well when it comes to the 2007 invasion that was actually my very first professional review that i ever did so i've i remember it fondly because i skipped out on my wedding anniversary weekend um So I could stay home and review it because it was going to be my first like review. Um, boy, oh boy, that movie is like, you know how like you know when you have a co- you, you have your original picture and then you yeah. take a Xerox copy of that picture and then you take a Xerox of the Xerox. You get the diminishing returns with every copy. I feel like sometimes, <laughs> uh, and I would say Invasion two thousand seven is probably the best example of that because you have I mean you have Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. Yeah, like come on, and. It was, I mean, it's so boring almost. Like, move. I don't know. It's, it lacks any sort of like emotional centeredness too. It was, it was not pleasant. Uh, and it is not a movie that I have felt like, oh, maybe I was too hard on it. I should go back and watch it. I haven't felt that at all. Um, and I'm always waiting because, you know, there's always somebody on the internet who's going to be like, stick up for that one movie. Like that guy is always out there and he's like, actually, this movie's not, not not that bad and blah, blah, blah. And I've never seen anybody go to bat for Invasion 2007. So I feel like that says pretty much everything that has to be said about 2000, you know, Invasion 2007. I, I went and rewatched it like three years ago, I think. I, I was just on a kick where I was like, I need to rewatch all the Invasion movies. I don't know what came over me, but decided to do it. And I got to the invasion, and I was actually sad afterwards, just because you're watching it. And there's so much talent that's in there, and then you read the backstory on the, it being uh, the director's English language debut, being fired in the process of it, uh, the Wachowski sisters being brought on to do rewrites, and them bringing James McTeague with them. And it's like you start to notice all the disconnect and then find out that like even after they came in that the studio is still recut stuff. And so it's just a Frankenstein monster of a movie that probably shouldn't have been made to begin with. And you feel like it. But in the weirdest, most positive way possible, I'm glad they made it because I don't think they will ever remake it again. Yeah, I mean, well, you you think that, but we still keep getting Robin Hood movies, so I don't feel like Hollywood learns anything. Like, how many times do we need that story? Like, I'm waiting next year for like a new King Arthur to come out as well. Like, don't we've been that. we've been down this road so many times, guys. Like, we don't need to, or or Peter Pan. You know, maybe in two years we'll get another Peter Pan as well. Um, yeah, I just feel like I would hope it's killed it, but you know, never say never. That's true. That's true. But someone will try to resurrect it. Somebody will be like, hey, if we brought back Orion Pictures from the grave, why can't we throw this on there, too? Yeah, you never know. So now that you've rewatched Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1978 again, 
with this rewatch, do you still feel that it's worthy of the pedestal that we put it up on? Or has the shine slowly worn off the film? Oh, no. I It's a movie that I... It, a lot of times, and, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person who does this, but when I'm working, I'll, I'll throw on a movie, you know, because I'll be like, oh, I'll throw this on or whatever if I'm scrolling through, like, cable and be like, oh, this is good. Um, the problem with Invasion is that every time I'm like, oh, I'll just throw this on while I'm working, I don't work um, because I'm immediately brought into this world. Um, and I just I love it. Like, I have spent most of my entire life loving this movie. And um, I, I don't feel like I'll ever tire of it. Um, there's always these fun little things that, you know, like you said, you, you know, things that you catch that you didn't quite catch the first time. Like I, I'm probably like at least a hundred viewings in at least. And I still like find these little nuggets that like Kaufman like leaves like little breadcrumbs around this movie. Um, like, especially if you look at like different titles of like books that are featured in the bookstore, mm-hmm. um, really it, there's, there's so many little things. It's, it's such a really well-conceived movie on so many different levels. Like you can tell everybody was there to do something in, like intriguing and thoughtful and, and, you know, of course entertaining, but like from production design to, you know, even the way that the special effects play out, like I think it's a really fantastic way that they sort of handled the quote unquote pod people. I think it's a really interesting, you know, choice that they went with and I think it works great. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the lighting of the movie, the cinematography, like the sound design, the score, everything, you know, I hate to be the, say the cliche phrase, but it all fires on all cylinders, you know? Um, and I just, I think it's a movie that even 40 years later is still one of the greatest science fiction, you know, movies we've ever had. There you go. I I mean, I can't really say it, you know, better myself. Uh, The the only thing that we didn't touch upon. So we'll just give a quick shout out to them is uh, the, the sound effects work. That was being done by uh, Ben Burt, who, of course, was just coming off of phenomenal. I, I, everything that he did was phenomenal. But, of course, he, he you know came to everybody's attention with Star Wars. But then just the sounds that he makes with the when the pods are, are opening up. And it's just it's it's so visceral just from the sound that it, it, it's just another element that adds to this film. Um so where can the good people on the internet find you? And what what, what do you want to promote? Um, well, I mean, if you want to find me, you don't have to. But if you did, um, I'm over on Twitter at The Horror Chick. Um, for anybody who's interested in uh, Monster Squad, uh, we're over there on Twitter at Monster Squad FX. Uh, you can find my writing on dailydead.com. I don't do Facebook cause it's weird. Um, so I stay off of that platform. Uh, I've been off for six years and I don't regret it because everybody who is on Twitter and complains about Facebook is always miserable. And I'm like, ah, I don't know any of that pain. Um, but yeah, so I'm over on daily dead and of course corpseclub.com as well. Um, but yeah, uh, mostly I hang out on Twitter. So if, if you've listened to this episode, um, and you have any kind of thoughts on invasion, please let me know. Cause I will always always talk about invasion 78 there you go that's that's good enough for me and of course you can find me over on twitter at yo adrian taurus and then for the show we're over at at horrorversary again it was one of the simple ideas of the name stuck in my head it was available on twitter it was available everywhere and i'm like i'm gonna use it there and so i i try to put it to use Uh, we've got several episodes that are out and we're still going to be dropping basically every other week 
for the near future. We do have several people that we're recording with. So as I get a good back catalog, we might start dropping every week, but I, I don't want to, to get out of sorts. Um, if you enjoy the show, then of course, like it, tweet about it, uh, review it on iTunes, all that good stuff, whatever moves us up the chains a little bit. Uh, Heather, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's always fun to talk about old movies. So, you know, I'm, I'm always game. So next time, you know, you got some good anniversaries coming up. Be sure to let me know. Next year, I will definitely make sure to send you a list. Until then, be nice to each other, everybody. Bye. <laughs>